0: Thank you, Pastor Ryan. As I met yesterday with a group of high school friends, and dare I say our intention was to plan our 30th high school reunion. And as we were sitting there and we were talking, and I sat on this swing with this gentleman, he said, you know what, I just love life, and we ought to celebrate it. I said, I wish I could take you to church tomorrow. And you could just a little elaborate on that, that. I just love life, and I think that we ought to celebrate it. This morning, we're going to mention some things here that, that will bring up connotations in your life. I want to talk to you about the sanctity of life. And in your mind, you immediately probably think about the beginning and the end. But that's not what I want to focus on this morning. I want to focus on the space in between. And what the sanctity of life means for us as we live our own lives each and every day. Not in some hope for something that will happen in the future, which we do. But never at the expense of the life that we live right now. I, I am in, in 2 Samuel this morning. And I, I'm, I'm thankful that my part, uh, my preaching parts here are, are in Samuel. Because it's some of my favorite stuff. I love to preach out of Samuel. And so I'm thankful that we're here. And so I want to go back and cover a little bit so that we're all on the same page and so that we can follow through with what's happening here. And actually, when you think about sanctity of life, the passage of Scripture may sound a little bit strange that we're on, but um, it's the time in between. So we've discussed a couple weeks ago, in particular, we've discussed that this whole Samuel, David, and um, Saul and this whole story about, you know, David in particular, but also Samuel, how he had to endure some things, but how they've dealt with this thing of King Saul, this choice that King, that Saul had been decided that God had made a mistake, basically, and said, I, I don't want you as king anymore. You don't matter. And they had then anointed David. David, you're going to be the next king. But the thing is that there's this space in between where he's been anointed and that he's not yet. This place where Saul has been, the blessing of God has been taken away, but he's still the king. And this is the space that we find ourselves in here this morning. And you remember that God rejected him. And instead of destroying the Amalekites as he was supposed to do, Saul, King Saul, he didn't do it. Instead of of destroying everything, Saul and his armies kept the best of the flocks, the herds. And on that day, Saul found out, it's over for you. We know that the little shepherd boy, that no one would think that it would have anything happen to him, would be chosen as the next king, but nobody knows it except for Samuel and David's family right now. But it's going to get out. wasn't chosen because he was strong. It wasn't chosen because he was good-looking, but because he was a man after God's own heart, it said, even as a young boy. And then, you know, even a year ago, one of my favorite series that we did, The Goliath Must Fall, in, in those passages of scriptures, and uh, we found out that David would come and he would defeat Goliath, you remember. And he wouldn't do it with his sword or he wouldn't do it with javelins, but he would do it in the name of the Lord. And then the time after David fe- defeats Goliath, chapters 18 through 31 in 1 Samuel, First Samuel tells us, more about how David is is rising in popularity. How he's a, a great military leader. How people are drawn to David. All of these things, and we learn how Saul is in a steady decline. That nothing seems to be working in this in this story. And we learn of Saul becomes increasingly jealous of David because he knows what's coming, and he gets an obsession with David. He's chasing him everywhere. He's pursuing him, and out in the wilderness, and he's trying to kill David. Is You might understand if you were king and someone was about to take over, right? And so while David's running for his life, he manages somehow to still continue to protect the Israelites. He's still winning battles. He's still leading these things, going against the Philistines and and Amalekites. And, And twice, twice during this time, we find out that he's in the wilderness these campaigns. And he's given an opportunity, David is given an opportunity to kill Saul. Saul who's king, who's not going to be king, David's the next king. Twice we see stories where David could have just taken his opportunity, killed Saul, and he would have been king. Twice. The first time, David just cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And he gives it evidence that, hey, I was so close to you, you didn't even know it. I could have killed you. The second time, he's sleeping, and he takes a spear from him. Both times, he has advisors who say, David, you should go ahead and do this. You can do it. Everybody loves you anyway. This is a great time. You should go ahead and just kill him. Let's, let's get you king. Let's make all this happen. All his advisors are saying this. But David tells them this time, he, said, he reminds them, he said, Saul is the Lord's anointed. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 10, David says to his men, As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him, either in his time, his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to force anything. I'm ready to wait as long as I need to. And then in 1 Samuel 31, we find the demise of Saul. If you want some homework, go read it. It's, it's, uh, we read the account of the last part of his life. The Philistines were going to win a battle against the Israelites. They had overrun them. They were, they were going to take them. Saul, with his armor bearer, says, can you kill me? They're fixing to kill me. Can you go ahead and run that spear right through my heart because this is it for me? The armor bearer says, no, I, I'm not doing that. And so Saul lays up the spear and he attempts to take his life and he runs himself through with the spear. And the armor bearer sees that, so he kills himself too. So you read the final account of Saul there in, in 1 Samuel 31. And when the Israelites learned this, they go back and they recover the bodies of Saul and his son and they give him this proper burial and then they fast for seven days, they're in mourning. And it would appear that while Saul and his men are fighting this battle, or the Philistines, being suddenly defeated, David's all fighting another war, another battle with the Amalekites, and he's destroying them. They are, they are annihilated. And, and they, everyone except for 400 Amalekites who escape on a camel, or camels. <laughs> and it's not until David comes back from the battle that he hears about Saul's battle. And that's the account that we read right now. And it's a long lengthy passage, so I'll not ask you to stand, but it's in 2nd Samuel chapter 1 this morning where it begins. I usually mark my scriptures 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. And I'm going to read really through 27 verses here. So it's a little lengthy, but you'll get the story. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head, And so it was that when he came to David, he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where are those who were on the other side of the Jordan? Saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook the the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. And so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor, oh, then they put his arm, sorry, they put his, I've lost my place. This is what happens once you, once you uh, resign, you just lose something here. So, (laughs) what first was I on there? I forgot now what. They cut off his head, stripped from his armor, sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple and their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Asheros, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshem. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the men had rose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies and his sons from the wall of Bethshem. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamarish tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. And now the scripture that I'm supposed to read. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. David stayed there in Ziklag on, on the third day before it happened. a man came from Saul's camp with clothes torn and dust on his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? And so he said, I have come and escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people have, are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan and his son are dead also. And so David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan and his son are dead? And then the young man told him, he said, As it happened, by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind me, he saw me and called to me and I answered, Here I come, here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And so I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And so he he said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me. For anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. And so I stood over him and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the bracelet was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. And therefore David took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with them. And they mourned and wept and fasted, Until evening, for Saul and Jonathan his sons, for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told them, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called on one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him, and he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Because I read so much already, I'm going to leave the rest for you to read the song of the bow. Which is a lament that he wants the whole people to, to cry out and, and, and read. Because the king is dead and never the people. And it's a, it's a great story of his, the compassion that, that David has here. And if you take careful effort to read what's going on here. It's a little bit confusing. It's a little bit confusing as to what happened. You, you find yourself, what really took place on top of Mount Gilboa? What really happened there? What makes it particularly difficult is we don't know much about this Amalekite. We don't know much about this guy who comes and shows up with the, with the thing to give David. He, he just kind of tells this story. Can we trust him? Can we trust what he said, that truly he was there and did this mercy killing, if you will? Is it, is it really what it's about? Is he telling the truth? Where did he come from? Does he have any other motives? What, what, why is he here doing what he's doing? According to thirty one, chapter 31, Saul kills himself, right? That's what we understand. He happened, But it says here that he happens across Saul, and he's not quite dead. So he's not dead here. He says he's not dead, but he's certainly not fully alive, that he's not going to be able to make it. And the Amalekite presents himself in what he believes to be the best possible light, showing mercy to King Saul, finishing what Saul had begun, this suicide attempt. And at the same time, he's recovering the crown and the bracelet for David, who, by the way, had just destroyed the nation of Amalekites, which this man is an Amalekite. Was he one of the 400 who got away? I don't know. So should the two accounts be reconciled? What's going on here? What's in the middle of this? Some scholars think that they envision a scene where, where, where Saul tries to kill himself. His armor bearer believes he's seated. He properly follows suit. The Amalekite comes upon Saul Um, And Saul cries out to him, asking him to complete the job. And if that's true, then we have to take the Amalekite at his face value. The son of this alien within the camp of Israel, possibly living with Saul and his armies, fighting alongside of them. It is possible. Others, though, believe that the account are primarily reconciled by declaring the Amalekite to be a lying scoundrel. The very possibly he is one of the four hundred who has run off on camels, and he's like, "Hey, this is an opportunity to do something here." They picture him wandering through the battlefield, scavenging for weapons after everything is already over. They picture him in, in this scene, uh, weapons, other treasures, and it happens to come across King Saul, and he's like, "Oh my goodness, here's the king of the Israelite people," and he finds the dead king. He takes his crown, he bracelet, bracelet, and he concocts a story that would paint him as a hero. Showing mercy to Saul, actually handing the throne over to David because it's been talked about over and over. Perhaps he wants some security for the rest of the Amalekites. About 99 friends maybe who escaped with him, I don't know. King David would give him a place of honor in the kingdom of Israel perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not surely. What, I'm not sure that it even matters to tell you the truth this morning. As much month, as much time as I've already spent on talking about what happened, I'm not even sure it really matters. I don't think that the scripture is very clear on it. The Amalekite and his account should be trusted or not? I don't know. However, one thing I think is very super clear is that David's response to the news of Saul's death—that whole lament he makes the whole nation of Israel read and go over which I skipped this morning David takes the Amalekite at face value believes him to have done what David himself could have done on two separate occasions killed the Lord's anointing David has this man executed on the spot and he proceeds to grieve and I want to now focus on the real crux it's the character of David here Something that is so significant that begins to all of us. That shows us something about the character of God. David was good friends with Jonathan, his son. His relationship with, with Saul is adversarial, we know that. His relationship was certainly not good. He, that you could even say that they were enemies. And David was to replace Saul on that throne. And then David's plotting, David, because Saul is had under, under this assumption that he's plotting to kill me. Look at it from their perspective. I'm not sure that I, any of us would might be that different from Saul in many ways. He's on the offensive. But two times, David doesn't kill him. Two times he has the opportunity. How do you treat your enemies today? Well, I don't have any enemies, Faster, You don't? How do you treat people that Perhaps you'd rather not be around. Maybe that you hate. I don't know. We shouldn't have any hate in our heart, but maybe you hate them. How do you treat those who have pursued you and want your downfall? How do you pursue those who are against you? And every time that you seem to be doing something right, they want to take you down a notch. I don't know that any of us could tell us the story about Saul pursuing us like he pursued David. But we do have people in our lives who have made our life difficult. And sometimes you think they love it and it's all that they live for. How do you treat them? Wrap your arms around them and give them a kiss? Tell them that you're glad to see them? How do you think about those that you consider to be an enemy? Given the opportunity this morning, if you could take them down a hundred notches, would you? At work, if they were the worst people, if you could get them fired, would you? If you were in some organization and they held some high power and you could bring up something, and just slip a little note to somebody find out that they've done something, would you take them down? Or would you defend them at all costs? David's treatment of Saul, he's defending him at all cost. And and David is giving us a foretaste of the teaching that Jesus would eventually give us that would later come into the Sermon on the Mount that says something like this. He says to, to follow God is to go beyond what is good and to go beyond what is easy to do. It is easy to greet your brothers and smile at your friends. you are called upon to love your enemy to pray for those that persecute you even as David continued to as as David continued to serve King Saul even until the dying day Saul's a scoundrel, God doesn't like him he wants him dead and he still honors him, protects him and wants the best for him how many of you want the best for those people around you that stink it cuts to the heart it is the message of Christ it is the message that David kind of understands and it is the message given to you this morning I think we learned something else from this narrative here, something about the importance of life in a world where you can go to both extremes, you want to talk about you know, pro-life and, and abortion and then you want to talk about Um, assisted physician assisted suicides which often comes up in the idea of what sanctity of life is I think we need to learn a lesson in a world where we're often drawn to those positions we need to learn this in a world where we're tempted to play with life and death as though they're trivial matters we need to be reminded every single day your decisions are important Every single day, the actions that you take are important. Every single day that you seem to think that I'll just waste, I just need a little break from this. Everything is important that you do. People watch, people notice, and if God is alive in you, then he's really beginning to speak to you. Then you ought to be living a similar way. Really, they're matters of life and death. Life is a sacred gift from God. I am not here to pretend that life is not hard sometimes. I am not here to pretend that you can just buck up and you can say, oh, well, things will get, you know, I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying life is a gift and it's a blessing when we can begin to recognize that there are a whole lot more things to it than just ourselves. We must always be careful to reflect on the fact that God is the author of life. And that absolutely he believes in you, wants the best for you, absolutely is engaged and can bring wonderful things out of terrible situations. I don't believe that God causes the terrible situations. I believe that wonderful things can come out of those things. All people are loved. All people are valued by God. From an unborn child to to the oldest senior that you've ever met, to anyone that you've ever looked eyes upon, life is valuable and you should be engaging in such. It's more than just a moral, ethical decision of perhaps what the medical community might say about anything. It is about the character of God, the image of God being in every single person that you've ever met in your entire life and that you should respect and how you should love, how you should care. Father Tim, a small-town Episcopalian rector, and in his parish, he had this incident occur. A beautiful young woman who had recently moved back to town. One Sunday after church, she scheduled an appointment with Father Tim. And when he arrived in his office, that following morning, she sat down and he said, Father Tim, I'm dying. You can only imagine if you've ever been in that situation. That is an uh, awakening moment. And she said, I'm asking you to help me find something to make the rest of my life worth living. My mother left me with a winter home and a summer home. And I have considerable property on my own. I have wealth and I can sit back and spend the last months of my life being quiet and idle free. And she said, believe me, that's very tempting. But I did not come here to be a part of a club. I did not come to sit by the pool. There's something wrong with that. But it's abs- there's nothing wrong with that, but it's absolutely wrong for me. I can do something, and I know that I can make a difference with the time that I have left. After some discussion, Father Tim suggested that she might visit some patients in the hospital every single day. That she might be able to read Scripture to them every single day. In the span of precisely seven minutes... Which Pastor Tim says was the full extent of her visit. He'd been told a terrible truth. Had discovered an answer to prayer. Helped someone find a ministry. And been utterly refreshed in his own spirit. And he thought perhaps we all should live like we're dying. And you know me. Me. I love the lyrics of secular songs. Also, you know, Christian songs, too. And it doesn't take long for some of you to recognize, oh, I know what song he'll use today. And I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me. And a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays, talking about the options talking about sweet time I asked him when it sank in that this might be the real end how's it hit you when you get that kind of news man what'd you do now he says I went skydiving I went Rocky Mountain climbing and I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu but then he says I love deeper I spoke sweeter And I gave forgiveness that I'd been denied. And said, Someday I hope that you get the chance to live like you're dying. He said, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. And I became a friend that a friend would like to have. All of a sudden, going fishing wasn't such an imposition. And he goes on, and he's definitely similar. You ever thought about how much of your life could be spent denying forgiveness, not loving deep enough, trying to get back at an enemy? you ever thought about that? That is not, and we say, um, life is hard. I want you to know life is worth living. It is a wonderful thing, but so often we get caught up in doing the things that bring no life, the things that destroy life, the things that just take us down, and we just don't want to deal with it anymore. But when you begin to love deeper, and you begin to think about the kind of person I'd be, mom, dad, son, daughter, whatever, aunt, uncle, and you begin to think, I can do it better, and I don't have that much time, and I want them to know that I love them, and I want my life to be full, and I want their life to be full because I poured all of a sudden life is different yeah you know where you're going you know where you started but what are you doing in between folks I sat down there with people 30th high school reunion we're all getting close to 50 what happened what happened just yesterday as I look at the pictures and I think oh my word who is that boy as they head out there I'm so different. And years have passed. It's like the blink of an eye. And then I begin to think, what have I done with that time? Yeah, there are moments that I say, yeah, that's good, that's good. And then I think, how much time have I wasted? I want you all to know right now, this is really great positive theology. You're all going to die. Every single one of you are going to die. And often, and some of you may have heard me pray this or even talk to you or talk to a love member, love, love, a member of your family, a loved one. And I said, you know, it's a blessing when I find out people are, are actually going to pass away. I said, you know, it's a blessing in disguise in many ways because you know your life has a finite amount, whether it's days, weeks, months, or years. You know, most people never sit down and realize that life may end right now. Life may end on the way home from church. And I'm not here to to scare you into making decisions for Christ about that. What I'm here to tell you is you're not guaranteed another moment. Don't you want your life to matter? Don't you want people to understand that you've got to live like you were dying if you really believe that? And when you think about Christ, isn't that what he did? He lived like he was dying, and he was. If you knew how much time that you had left I suspect many of us would just live differently make sure your affairs were in order make sure that your loved ones were provided for I think you'd want to mend any bridges that you could I think you'd want to release any grudges that perhaps you're holding and you want to do something with those last few months that will make a difference in the world and why would you want to do that? You'd want to do it because life is important. It's a valuable gift from God. Because our belief in the sanctity of life goes far beyond just the beginning and the end. And I believe those are important issues. But isn't it equally, if not even more important, to consider what we live and how we live today? You've got to be careful when you tell a pastor something. David James David James was a 10 year old boy delivering papers in Chicopee, you know where Chicopee is he's delivering, he said one man would never pay him he said they would go by and he said I'll pay you next week I'll pay you next week and finally one week he moved David had to pay the, the, for the paper and the man just left him there David said, if I ever find him, I'm going to beat him up. <laughs> David found him in a Waffle House. David beat him up. No, he didn't. <laughs> David said, in a Christ-like way, he said, I looked, and he had compassion on him. He said, I know I could. He was an old man. He said, I knew I could beat him up. He said he wanted to to tip his coffee up and make it spill in his lap. Maybe push the hash browns down to his lap. But he felt sorry for him. I'm not saying you've got to feel sorry for people, but I believe when you start looking at people differently, you'll recognize that the choices that you do and the things that you do matter. They matter. I don't know how to say that more clearly. Do not get caught coasting. Do not get caught just thinking that you have all the time in the world. Make the most of it. And I'll close with one more song that most of you probably haven't heard, but maybe you have. Every day is a bank account, and time is our currency. So no one's rich and no one's poor. We each get 24 hours. So how are you going to spend? Will you invest or will you squander? Will you try to get ahead? or help someone who's under teach us to count the days teach us to make the days count lead us in better ways somehow our souls forgot that life means so much your life is so valuable looking at the story that I just read to you it's easy to get caught up in the death of Saul the circumstances that surround it but look at the bigger picture how how David showed us Live like you are dying. Life is important. Stand with me this morning. Our Father, we're thankful, for your, we're thankful for your scriptural truths. And God, I pray that deep inside of our hearts that though we agree with the message, I pray that you would send us constant reminders that our life is finite. That the things that destroy life, the things that, that, that bring no life, we would just let pass, God. And then we invest in things that bring life. For they are valuable. They are meaningful. And we believe that you've called us to do it. I pray that you'd help us to be like David, but more importantly, be like Christ. Because that's what you designed us for. Help us to be great representatives, allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through us as we become the hands and feet of Christ in this world. Bless us as we go our own way today. Amen. You're dismissed.